Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me one last time into the Gospel of Luke. For those of you who are visiting with us today, you may not be aware that today is the last in a sermon series that has stretched now three years. Uh, we are coming to the end at last of the Gospel of Luke. We may, of course, turn again there someday in the future, but my intention is not that we'll be back uh, in Luke anytime soon. And so this is uh, the close of something very special. I have now spent more time studying Luke with you than I spent in seminary preparing to be your pastor. Uh, this is a big deal. Um, Today we are uh, reading and studying together the last four verses of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, reading verses 50 through 53 on page 885 of our cart Bibles. And three years ago, and then again two years ago, this uh, September, uh, I stood when we were here but backwards, and I, I oriented us to the study of Luke's Gospel with a quote from J.C. Ryle, and I want to give you that quote again, just to remind you, what have we been doing for three years? Why have we spent so much time going verse by verse through a gospel in the New Testament? Here's what J.C. Ryle says. He says, it would be well if professing Christians studied the gospels more than they do. No doubt all scripture is profitable. It's not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another, but I think it should be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now why do I say this, he continues? I say it because I want Christians to know more about Christ. It's well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and the principles of Christianity. It's better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It's well to be familiar with the faith and grace and justification and sanctification. These are all matters pertaining to the king, but it's far better to be familiar with Jesus himself. To see the king's own face, to behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ. So what have we been doing for three years? We've been looking to Christ. And today, we will look to him again. And when we turn in just a few weeks to uh, Ecclesiastes, we're not going to stop looking at Christ, but we're going to have to look through a different lens. And so this is a reminder of what we've been doing and what we're doing today as we gather together. We're looking to Christ. So now, before we read Luke's Gospel together, please join me in prayer and let's pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to see him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Christ, our Savior, and this book that has taught us so much about him. We thank you for the way that over the last several years you have shaped us and molded us in his image. We pray that that would continue, that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to see Jesus, help us to rejoice in him, help us to know more of him and follow him and serve him with gladness of heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thus far the reading of God's holy in an errant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. 
You may not uh, be aware, uh, if you are not a pastor, Andrew may be aware of this since he is, Uh, but one of the great mysteries of pastoral ministry is the benediction that shows up at the end of every worship service. It's not... It's not a mystery in the sense that it's unfamiliar. We've seen them, we've, we've witnessed them, we've received them, if that's the word we want to use. It's, it's not unfamiliar to us, but it's a mystery for pastors in the sense that until you become a pastor, nobody ever takes you aside and says, now this is what you've got to do in order to do one. In seminary, I had classes, I had semesters worth of classes on how to preach and how to study the Bible and the original languages. I learned how to counsel hurting people and I learned how to become an effective leader, whatever that is. Uh, I, had, uh, I had classes and studies and I read entire books on what happens when we come to the Lord's table and yet until I raised my hands at the close of worship on May 6, 2012, no one in all of my education and all of my internship ever took me to the side and said, now for a benediction, this is what we're doing, this is why we do it, and this is how you perform it. As you look around at a congregation, you realize that if there's not confusion about benedictions among the people in the pews, there's at least a disagreement. Because we're divided over, I don't know, should we we lift our eyes or should we bow our heads when the benediction comes? Should we open our hands? Should we fold our hands? Should we do something else? Is there some other posture that we need to have? We sometimes approach the benediction at the close of the service as though we're not sure if it's a prayer or a proclamation, or just a nice punctuation at the end of the sentence. In the Bible, the first formal benediction shows up in the book of Leviticus, chapter 9. There in Leviticus, chapter 9, Aaron and his sons have just been uh, consecrated. They've been set apart as the first priests of Yahweh. There's this new religion for Jews wandering through the wilderness, and they are the first priests. And the tabernacle's been constructed and the priestly garments have been sewn and the altar of the Lord has been cast in bronze and as a first act of worship, Aaron is commanded to offer offerings, lots of offerings. And most of chapter 9 takes the time in detail to explain all of those offerings that Aaron uh, made before the Lord. But then at the end of the chapter, in verse 22, it tells us when the offerings are done, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It was a punctuation of sorts. It was was an ending. It was the close of the first uh, worship service with God in the desert. But it was also a beginning. It was a new relationship for this people who had been redeemed out of slavery. It was this symbol of assurance that though they were stiff of neck, though they were hard of heart, the Lord was going to walk with his people. He was going to bless his people. He would fulfill his promise to save his people. As we come to the close of Luke's account of Jesus' ministry, we find that he has recorded for us the benediction of our ascended Savior. It shows up there in the image of a great high priest. He led them out as far as Bethany, and then lifting his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven. It's an ending, it's a punctuation, but it's also a beginning. 
It is the close, the the fulfillment of Christ's earthly ministry to his people. It's also the consummation of his people's earthly ministry in his name and by his power. There's a transition happening here in the benediction that Jesus is giving. And standing in the gap between uh, Jesus' ministry and his people's ministry, it's the benediction. It's this declaration of, of God's favor. It is a summons into God's service. And so as we look to Jesus one more time in Luke's gospel, we're going to, to look uh, quite simply at his blessing for us and our service to him. Those are our two points today. Christ's blessing and our service. We begin uh, by considering Christ's blessing. Verse 50 again. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now the word translated blessed there, or later when it shows up blessing, uh, the word is uh, eulogeo. It's close to our word to eulogize. If you've ever been to a funeral and you've heard someone offer a eulogy, literally the the word means to speak a good word. And so Jesus was speaking. Even though the words aren't recorded for us, when it says that he blessed them, he was pronouncing a good word over his people. A benediction is about speaking God's goodness on his people. It's not a prayer. Actually, it's a pronouncement. There were other times when Jesus prayed for his people the night before his crucifixion in the upper room. Jesus prayed on behalf of his people. He asked the Father to to unite them together, to make them abide together in his love. Uh, He asked the Father to do all sorts of things, to sanctify them in the truth, to guard them from the evil one, to give them love in in the sight of the world. In the upper room, Jesus was interceding. He was asking on our behalf. But at the benediction, Jesus is not asking. He's announcing. It's a declaration of blessing. It's a word of authority that Jesus makes over his people. God's goodness will come to them. His people shall receive the blessings of his ministry on their behalf. Now, as I mentioned, Luke does not give us the words that Jesus spoke. We don't know exactly the words that Jesus used to bless His people, but we do know many of the blessings that come to us because our Savior has been resurrected and is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Consider some of the blessings of Jesus' ascension benediction. There is the blessing of his acceptable sacrifice. Now, Hebrews tells us that our great high priest has passed through the heavens, that he entered into the holy of holies. Not the the holy place on earth, not the the sanctuary in the temple made of marble and gold, and, and not the place where there were shadows of greater things, but Jesus has entered into God's presence, into the very throne room of the Lord. He's ascended, just as he told the Jewish council that he would, to the right hand of God's power. And unlike the priest here on earth, he ascended and he went into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls and goats, which can never atone for sins, but he went there with the blood of his own perfect sacrifice for sinners. It was an atonement completed. It was, it was a sacrifice sufficient for all his people and all their sins. It was a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God. Now, there's a, a juxtaposition in the Old Testament if you keep on reading there in Leviticus chapter 9 and, and on into chapter 10. I read a little bit of chapter 9 where the fire of the Lord comes out and consumes the offerings that, uh, that Aaron is making. But if you keep reading for three more verses, there's a different scene because in Leviticus chapter 10, that's the account of the strange fire that, that Aaron's sons offered. 
uh, Nadab and Abihu, they were offering offerings according to what seemed right in their eyes, what they wanted to do. They offered this sacrifice before the Lord that he had not commanded. And verse 2 of chapter 10 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The point is, there are acceptable sacrifices, and there are unacceptable sacrifices. And all of our time and all of our possessions and and all of our moral obligations and our good works can never suffice to fill the gap of holiness between us and the consuming glory of God Almighty. But Hebrews tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's a blessing on our behalf. It's the blessing of his acceptable sacrifice. There's also the blessing of his his promised spirit. Here at the end of his gospel, Luke seems to have have sort of squished everything that Jesus did after the resurrection and before the ascension into into one nice, neat little package. But he tells at the beginning uh, of the, the book of Acts that it actually happened over a period of 40 days, that Jesus would appear, he would be among his people, he would teach them, he would lead them, he would continue to open their minds to understand the scriptures, and then sometimes he would disappear. He would leave them wanting more. And then he would show up again, and they would see him, and they'd, they'd rejoice, and he was there with them. But, but the ascension is different. There is an air of finality about it. When Jesus leaves, he's not coming back until he really comes back. And that's a good thing. Jesus told his disciples that it was good for them that he should leave, because unless he left, he he wouldn't send the Holy Spirit. The Helper will not come to you, he said, but if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus has left the earth in body, but he's ascended to to send the blessing of the presence of his Spirit. He actually left to be, in a sense, closer than he was when he was with his disciples in the body. He left so that his presence could be among us and in us and with us. It's the benediction that he speaks at the close of Matthew's gospel. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now what blessing do believers receive when we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, you might as well ask, what what benefit do our lungs receive by breathing oxygen? Right, where... Where there is no spirit, there is no life. And without God's spirit, we're blind to the gospel. And devoid of the spirit, we descend into selfishly defending our own little kingdoms and working to establish our own little righteousnesses. And where there is no spirit, there is no life. But when the spirit comes, he brings faith and he brings repentance. He brings trust and hope and joy in the Lord. Just as God breathed life into the dust of the earth and called him Adam, so the Holy Spirit comes and breathes the life of Christ into his people. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life, and it is the ascended Jesus who sends the blessing of his promised spirit. So there's the blessing of life in the ascension. Life by God's spirit now, and also the promise of life together with him in glory in the future. That's another of the blessings of Christ's ascension. It's the blessing of our life with him. Consider the miracle of our Redeemer. 
At the incarnation, the Son of God descended to take upon himself our humanity. At the ascension, the Son of Man went up to take our humanity with him forever. Now, in, in Myrtle Beach, at least it was the last time I was there, I imagine it hasn't changed much. In Myrtle Beach, it seems like every street uh, has at least one surf shop, at least one tourist trap. And it seems like every surf shop in Myrtle Beach has at least one tank of hermit crabs crawling around in there with their brightly painted shells. And sometimes when you visit Myrtle Beach, you come home with a hermit crab in a cardboard box. <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that you expect. It's just what happens. It's part of the Myrtle Beach experience. <laughs> now, but parents know the score. That hermit crab is never as exciting at home as it was in that surf shop in Myrtle Beach. You get home and that hermit crab just becomes one more source of clutter, so what do you do? Oh, you're not a monster, so you keep feeding the thing, hoping that it's just going to die already. Or you find a family that wants to try a pet, and you say, have you tried hermit crabs? Here you go. Jesus doesn't take our humanity to himself the way that a child brings a hermit crab home from the beach. Jesus doesn't take our humanity to himself the way that you put on a sweater in early September and then go, you know what, that's a little too warm, and end up taking it off anyway. At the resurrection, Jesus took all that is low, all that is humble about our flesh, and he clothed it forever with perfection and immortality. And in the ascension, the God-man assures us that the way is open to God himself through his flesh, through his permanent place in the presence of the Father. J.C. Ryle, again, our, our companion through Luke's gospel, said it this way. He said, our Lord Jesus Christ has gone into the presence of God as a forerunner. Our great head has taken possession of a glorious inheritance on behalf of his body, the church, and he holds it as an elder brother, as a trustee, until the day comes when his body shall be perfected. The Apostle Paul put it better in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so there is life with him. It's the blessing of his ascension. There is the presence of his spirit. There is his sacrifice accepted in our place. And so with, with raised hands, he spoke a good word over them, his benediction. But his benediction calls his people into service. And that's our second point. It's our service for him. Now, you've probably been in one of those church buildings where when you go to leave after the service out in the narthex over the, the main door that opens out into the parking lot in big bold letters is a message and it says, you are now entering the mission field. Now, that captures pretty clearly the other part of what's happening in a benediction at the close of the service. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord gives that classic benediction that you hear from time to time. This is what he tells Moses. He said, speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then he says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. 
That's what happens in a benediction. The name of God is being put upon his people. In other words, this is one of the ways that God claims possession. His people go out from gathering together where things are safe and things are happy and we're of one accord when uh, our sin isn't getting in the way, but we're a body, we're a family together, and we go out into the world that wants to squeeze us into its mold, that wants to conquer us for its own amusement. But at the close of the service, God puts his name upon his people. In the Old Testament, they had circumcision and they had the feast and in the New Testament we have we have the Lord's Supper we have baptism we have the sacraments where God applies the sign and seal of his covenant of grace but he also gives us the benediction and he puts his name upon his people and he sends them out Robert Rayburn wrote that no worshipers should ever be sent forth to serve in their own strength They must ever be dismissed in the name of the Lord with the assurance of the power and presence of the triune God to accompany them always. In other words, when Christ ascended, when he reigns from heaven, his blessing is to send us into service. The same way that it sent the first disciples here at the close of Luke's gospel. So in these verses, we see a model of Christian service, Christian ministry in Jesus' name. We see the service of worship, verses 51 and 52. While he blessed them, he parted from them, he was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. That seems like the next natural thing. You read it all over the Bible. The Lord appears, and people bow down and worship, and it seems so scripture-y that we don't even pay attention to it. We don't even notice it. Jesus ascends, and they worship him. But notice this. Notice this, because this is the first time anywhere in the gospel Luke mentions anything about anyone worshiping Jesus. The first time. All the reactions that Jesus got over the course of his lifetime on earth. He stayed behind in the temple, and his parents were worried. He preached in Nazareth, and all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. He fed the multitudes, and the crowds were intrigued. He cured the lepers. He cast out the demons. He opened the eyes of the blinds, and the people are amazed. The leaders are frustrated. What about his disciples? What about those who are closer to him? Well, he calms the storm, and the apostles are terrified. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes, and Peter speaks gibberish. That's the reaction he got. He meets them in resurrection glory on the road to Emmaus, and their hearts were burning. But not once, and from no one, does Luke say that anyone worshipped Jesus until this point. Until they finally get it. And their eyes are opened, and they they understand. Not their, their hearts are burning, but their hearts are changed. And they see him with faith. They see the man Jesus for who he is. The eternal son of God who for us and for our salvation came down and was made man. Now they see him returning to the glory he had with the father before the foundation of the world. And these Jews who were nursed on the most fiercest, the most possible monotheistic idea you could ever have. They offer to Jesus what belongs to God alone. They give him worship. And it's not worship on a Sunday morning for 90 minutes. It doesn't fit so neatly into their schedules like that. 
It's it's not anemic worship where they say, I'm going to worship between the call to worship and to the benediction, and then I'm going to go back to the rest of my life, and everything will be different. Uh, They don't worship in in perfect, practiced, four-part harmony. They worship spontaneously, like those who know that they belong, uh, mind and soul, body and spirit, life and death, to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. They offer the spontaneous praise of those who can conceive of no higher joy than singing the glories of Jesus Christ. And the more you know of His ascension blessings, the more you will grow into that kind of worship too. It's a service that His his Spirit prepares us for and produces in us. Our service of worship. Secondly, we see a service of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And they did. Right? Jesus has, has led them out as far as Bethany. That's where the Mount of Olives was. That's where the ascension takes place. It's a, it's a village just outside the bounds of the city where, where Nat, uh, Lazarus lived with, uh, with his sisters Mary and Martha. Jesus leads them out into Bethany, and he he leads them out so that they can see him off. But before he leads them out, he gives them a command. He says, stay in the city. Stay until I send the, uh, the Spirit upon you. Stay until you are clothed with power from on high. Again, parents know what's up, right? You know there is that child who thinks that you can't see them. Less than that, there's a child who simply can't see you. And as long as they can't see you, it doesn't matter. And you watch them, even though they think you're not watching them. And they go back to exactly that thing that that they and you know they shouldn't be doing. Or there's that child who, who obeys, even when you're not around, but they do it with a huff. And they do it with a pout. And they do it as though they're being personally maligned to have to obey the rules that you've given to them. Not these disciples. They worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus has told them that life has to be different from now on. You know, between the resurrection and the ascension, some of them tried to go back to their regular life. Peter and his brothers went back to Galilee. They got in a boat. They tried to spend their time fishing. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you need to stay in Jerusalem. You need to wait. And that's what they did. They waited, and now now everything is different. Now that Jesus is resurrected, they're content. Because the ascension has spoken to them, not only of glory, but it's spoken to them of authority. Christ the Lord reigns from heaven. He's the creator who can define our reality and command our obedience. And those who know his ascended glory by faith become willing conscripts into his service. They are made and they are enabled to do and to love and to believe as he would have us. And we're made to conform our lives to Christ's demands rather than trying to fit Christ's demands to fit our desires. So it's a service of our obedience. It's a service of our worship. And lastly, there's the service of joyful expectation. You may notice that the Gospel uh, Gospel of Luke ends exactly as it began. It ends in the temple. It ends with faithful servants of the Lord joyfully expecting some miraculous thing that is about to happen next. They are on the verge of something wonderful. Even though perhaps in chapter 1, Zechariah didn't understand it. 
Yet there he was, serving the Lord, worshiping God, blessing God. Except for Zechariah in chapter 1 in the temple, he was made mute because of his disbelief. Well, here at the end, the apostles and the disciples return to Jerusalem in expectation and praise. Their tongues are loosed. They look forward to what Christ is going to do. It says they were continually in the temple blessing God. Again, it's that same word used to describe Jesus' benediction back in verse 50. They made it their habit to gather together and to speak good words of what God had done. To stir one another up to love and to good works as they anticipated what Jesus was yet to do. They did it by blessing him. They they did it by worshiping the Lord Christ and by waiting for his spirit. It's the story of the book of Acts, isn't it? It's the story of, of the church through all generations. Right? The spirit fills and the people rejoice. The Lord moves and the people rejoice. The gospel spreads and the people rejoice. And persecution comes and the people rejoice. And possessions are sold, and needs are met, and missionaries are sent out, and churches are planted, and the gospel extends to the farthest reaches of the world, and the people of God rejoice. They speak good words because Christ the Lord is reigning from heaven. And they know that though they still struggle with stiff necks and hard hearts, he has promised to walk with his people. They know that he has put his name upon them. And they're his. And he's the king, and he's ascended to fulfill the promise of our salvation. And so, dear believers in Christ, the Lord Jesus speaks his benediction over you. His word of blessing. His word of blessing which calls you into service. And so what more can we do but to worship and to obey? What more can we do than to joyfully expect that he will keep his word? We've come now to the close of our study in Luke's gospel. We're not at the end of our service yet, but a benediction feels about right. Because we're going to transition. This is the end of one thing, but we're not going to stop looking to Jesus. We're not going to stop being his people because we've come to the close of one, uh, one story about him. And so, dear believers in Christ, you redeemed the Lord. Hear now God's good word for you, his benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for Christ our Savior who has done all that is necessary for our salvation, who by his indwelling spirit continues to conform us to his image so that we would be made more like you, so that when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Oh, help us, your people, as we go out into the world to go bearing your name upon us, realizing the blessing of who our Savior is, engaged in service for the sake of your kingdom. Help us to understand what it is you're doing through us, what you would have us to do, Make us obedient to your word because we love you. Help us to trust you and follow you and serve you with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.